Hi, everyone. My name is Jen Malat, a partner in Freshfield's offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels, and you're listening to the Essential Antitrust Podcast. Today, I'm so excited to discuss the interplay between antitrust law and gender, which is an emerging topic that is slowly and surely becoming a mainstream agenda item for enforcers and practitioners alike, all thanks to a project that was commissioned by the OECD and the Canadian Competition Bureau, or the CCB. Our conversation is in fact prompted by a toolkit that was recently published by the OECD and the CCB on gender-inclusive competition law. Now, we encourage you to also check out a blog post that we've written on this topic, and the reactions we've received in response to that blog really demonstrate that there's a very high level of interest in what the OECD and the CCB are up to. Some of you may also have had a chance to attend a joint ABA and CCB panel event that our colleague, Ermelinda Spinelli, participated on earlier in November. Exploring this topic can really offer companies a lot of insights onto where enforcement might be headed. So fortunately to discuss this, I'm joined by three of my expert colleagues. First, we have Nick French, a partner in our London office. Hi, Nick. Hi, Jen. We also have Vanessa Van Wielden, a principal associate from Brussels. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Jen. Good to be here. And last but not least, we have Morag Elwes, an associate from our Silicon Valley office. Hi, Morag. Hi, Jen. So, Vanessa, maybe I can go to you to kick this off. As I mentioned, the OECD and the CCB recently launched a toolkit on this topic, but it'd be great if you could give us a little bit of background on the toolkit. Where did that come from and what was the process that was used to put it together? Yes, of course, Jen. Actually, it started in 2018 when the OECD, together with the Canadian Competition Bureau, launched the OECD Gender Inclusive Competition Policy Project. At this point, this topic was really uncharted territories. In 2020, the project called in researchers to contribute research proposals. Seven of these proposals were selected and worked on a year later in 2021. Ultimately, in September 2023, so not that far ago, the OECD Gender Inclusive Competition Toolkit was published and is now available in four different languages, together with a checklist to help authorities to implement gender-inclusive practices available in many more languages. Yeah, and I can come in and explain some of the research proposals selected. So there were seven research proposals selected to cover a broad range of topics relevant to competition law. So firstly, there's an extensive study by Xera on whether gender plays a role in our economic behavior and our choices as consumers, and then whether this changes how we approach markets. So it looks at price sensitivity, substitution through a gender lens and like willingness to switch products. There's also another study which looks at, for example, how product attributes and marketing and sales channels affect different genders' consumer behavior and whether that plays into market definitions. And then there's a couple of studies looking at cartel networks and gender. So one study looks at the relationship between cartel behavior and the durability of a cartel and how that occurs in networks ruled by masculine values. And then how that affects the position of women in these business environments. And that uses data from French cartel cases. Then there's another study that examines the presence of women in boards and decision-making bodies and whether that affects cartelist behavior. And then a further study focuses on gender differences when engaging inclusive behavior. Finally, another study suggests a framework for including gender as a public interest consideration. So similar to the inclusion of public interest considerations for historically disadvantaged groups in South Africa. And I guess it's worth saying here, Morag and colleagues, that 
This is not just about competition enforcement through a gender lens, because the studies also look at topics relevant to governance of competition authorities. And specifically, two out of the seven research projects analyse the inclusion of gender in authority decision-making and assess whether the gender lens should be used by competition authorities in actually selecting the projects on which they're going to spend their revenues. So, for example, an agency could consider to prioritise the gender of individuals bearing the brunt of competitive harm when deciding which investigations to open, which cases to prosecute and the like. Or they could emphasise measures that remove artificial barriers to new business developed by women. So you can see that this is a really wide topic for us to think more about. Thanks, Nick. It's interesting to hear there are all these different studies, they provide different insights on this, but What happened when the OECD and the CCB tied this all together? What did they find at the end of the day? Is there some connection between gender considerations and how we should be thinking about competition enforcement? Yes, it seems so, which perhaps shouldn't be so surprising, but it is interesting. So at a high level, what the toolkit and the preceding studies show is that gender has an impact on both consumer behavior and also on firm behavior. And this should be examined in competition analysis. In fact, the research shows that incorporating gender-conscious analysis could allow authorities to make better and also more tailored decisions. This affects especially markets where products are offered directly to end consumers. So it has an effect whether an end consumer is a man or a woman. This applies to various fields of competition law. So you can apply it in respect to cartels, in respect to antitrust, and also in respect to merger control. So Jen, maybe I can add some colour by giving you a practical example of what Vanessa is talking about. So one of the studies focuses on the role of gender in assessing different product and service markets and explores what implications this has on competition analysis. So, for instance, a national competition authority analyses a merger between two healthcare treatment centres. It considers the degree to which consumers switch healthcare insurance provider when treatment at their preferred treatment centre is not covered by the insurance. And when you don't segment the market by gender, the agency concludes that the merger does not have a significant competitive effect on the insurance provider market. But if they did segment by gender, the agency would see Differently, they'd see that women are disproportionately harmed as they're much more likely to switch health insurance providers if their preferred treatment centre is not covered by the insurance offering. So by looking through a gender lens, there's a potential for a different outcome. And that might sound obvious, but unless it's actually done and followed through, you might not otherwise reach this conclusion and consumer harm may well occur when otherwise it wouldn't have or vice versa. Yeah, and just to add to Nick's example, there's also an example using historic data from a grocery merger where the paper looked at diversion ratios. So as we know, used in competition analysis to predict post-merger price increases. And it found that the merger might not be concerning and the, the ratios might not be concerning when the market is looked at as a whole. But then if you broke the data down by gender, it suggested that women are more price sensitive and they have different preferences on product substitution. So then the diversion ratios for women shoppers are much higher than the overall figures. 
It also combined that with data analysis on the fact that women account for more expenditure at grocery stores. So the study showed that a transaction which seems unproblematic when you look at both genders could actually be eligible to be remedied or blocked when the data is broken down by gender, which really underscores how important survey design can be in understanding the competitive dynamics of a proposed merger, particularly when you want to look at a gender level. And thinking about cartels, as a man, I was really interested and and also somewhat amused and embarrassed in equal measure by some of the conclusions that were reached in the studies insofar as they related to cartel behaviour and collusive behaviour by firms. And one study focuses on the influence of informal male-centric social networks, boys' clubs, old boys' networks, etc., in cartel behaviour. And the studies point to empirical evidence that shows that cartels thrive in informal environments and are often composed of people that have prior social relationships. Now, that's perhaps not all that surprising, as mates are more likely to chat and sometimes with their guard down. But what I found interesting is that cartels more usually occur in practice in male-dominated environments where women are viewed as outsiders. And somewhat incredibly, um, to me anyway, fewer than 2% of the core collaborators in cartels that were sanctioned by the French Competition Authority between 2010 and 2021 were women. So 98% of those sanctioned were men. Now that's pretty significant and it tells me that the competition authorities are likely to have more success in exploring cartel activity in male-dominated industries or in industries or regions with male-dominated sales forces or boards of directors, for example. So quite a different perspective can be seen from that. What I also wanted to add, we talked about cartels, about merger control, but there are also two more overarching topics that the OEC research addressed in the end. The first one being gender as a public interest factor. So this is not something new, right? But there are a number of jurisdictions that take into account other social priorities in addition to gender, when analyzing the legality of mergers or conduct investigations. So that can be also something just as a broader topic that has to be weighed in in the future. And the second point is about institutional diversity. The research found that pursuing greater institutional diversity within competition authorities themselves also strengthens their decision-making processes. And this is a factor that many competition authorities in their recruiting and in their HR policies already recognize. But what I believe is also important to consider when thinking about this subject. Yeah, and Vanessa, I think to your last point, that shouldn't be surprising to anyone, given that that same dynamic also drives, you know, the push for diversity at corporations and other business organizations where, you know, similarly, there have been all kinds of studies showing that having increased diversity of the decision-making bodies in those organizations actually improves uh, outcomes and strengthens how robust those processes are. So, you know, I think, Vanessa, as you said a little bit earlier, it's not really kind of surprising to hear some of these conclusions, although it is really interesting to see them all wrapped up with a bow in one study and, and toolkit. And Morag, I'm interested to hear to what extent have these gender differences that you've been describing already been a factor that competition authorities consider in merger cases or, or other types of investigations. And it also would be interesting to hear from you all as to how else this toolkit might be used in practice going forward? Do we see authorities kind of showing interest in this and potentially 
picking it up and changing how they're going to run some of their investigations? Yeah, so I think I think you're right to call to the fact that mergers are the main arena where we've seen gender-based analysis come into play so far. So authorities have highlighted different ways in which gender can influence factors such as demand and product substitution when defining relevant markets, but typically so far in arenas which we might expect that to be the case, so for example, consumer goods. So in the US, we saw that kind of analysis in the FTC's review of Procter & Gamble's acquisition of Gillette in 2005. And the FTC there defined the relevant market as antiperspirant and deodorant for men only, I think, which surprises none of us. As a result, the FTC then required a divestiture of Gillette, right guard men's antiperspirant and deodorant. Then I think more recently, again, probably not an area which would surprise us, the FTC has concluded that the market for wet shave razors can be divided by gender lines. So they looked at that in Harry's and Edgewell and then the Billy and P&G cases. Another area which they've looked at different gender divides is, is has been in some of the pro sport cases as well in the US. So sitting in London, as I do, it doesn't surprise me at all that there are some good, clear examples of the UK Competition and Markets Authority considering competition assessments through a gender lens. After all, there are and have been for some time many women employed by the CMA itself, including at the highest levels, and the current CEO, Sarah Cardell, being an excellent example. So an example might be the Hasbro E1 merger a couple of years ago, where the CMA did exactly that and considered whether the relevant market should be segmented along gender lines in assessing the market for the manufacture and wholesale supply of toys and games. But really, Jen, the bigger point for me is whether the OECD study should make us think about assessments through a gender lens being institutionalised. Because I suspect there are other cases where the competition analysis might not have considered the influence of gender. And had it been considered, I just wonder whether there might have been a slightly different outcome. Yeah, and it's an interesting point, Nick, because I mean, I think a lot of the cases that you and Morag have raised are cases where it's obvious to look through a gender angle because the products are marketed separately to men and women. But based on what you've said before, there could be lots of situations where a product is not separately marketed to men and women, where, for example, in your healthcare example that you gave, the purchasing patterns are nevertheless different, and that may be something interesting to consider. But Vanessa, what about in the EU? Has the EU picked up this point? Yeah, thanks for raising this. So the examples, Jen, as you said, predominantly relate to products which are diversified for women and men. You have the example of the merger of Unilever and Sara Lee that the European Commission considered. And there they looked at the competitive constraint between male and female deodorants. So the deodorants for women and men. And they found that these represented two distinct relevant product markets. This is, of course, relatively intuitive because there is no direct competition from the consumer for these two markets. However, the toolkit goes beyond that. And that's what Nick just raised and what you also mentioned, Jen. The toolkit wants to examine if there's a wider scope of application outside of these relatively straightforward cases in markets where it's not so intuitive that there is a male and a female product, say, for example, credit cards or insurance products. Is that also something where the toolkit can be applied? And the toolkit means, yes, you need to look also for these markets where the purchasing behavior is different by men and women, 
whether the factors you have to consider when you look at product substitution are different. If we are talking about one and the same product for men and women, applying a gender-based analysis as a default means that the evidence will be different. So you would need to see if you gather evidence on, say, price sensitivity or other criteria of competition, if that criteria is different for one group compared to the other. If you then add the size of each groups and the customer groups and the ability to switch, that allows for quite interesting conclusions. For example, it provides more insights into whether a price increase by the merged entity would be profitable, since one group or the other may respond differently to it. And that goes just back to the point that Nick mentioned before. It can have a different outcome of a merger review. This can help an authority to prove a case. But what's also important to us as private practitioners is it can also be a powerful means for emerging companies to rebut certain assertions because a case might just look differently if you look at from a different angle. So it depends on a case by case, but in any event, the toolkit says, and I believe it's true, it will give us a fuller picture of the evidence and a more complete view on how the market actually would react to merger. Thanks, Vanessa. I want to go back to the point that was mentioned earlier about institutional diversity within the competition authorities themselves, because it seems like one of the ways that regulators can be more attuned to looking at this is to just have more diversity within the institution themselves. So this is more likely to be on the radar. You know, Morag, what are the kind of major competition authorities around the world doing and thinking about in terms of their internal governance to ensure that they have gender diversity at the moment? There are some existing examples of authorities looking at their internal diversity and also being conscious of diversity when they are looking at how they run the organization and the cases they bring. For example, in the US, the FTC operates under an equity action plan, and that outlines how the agency can strengthen support for underserved communities through its enforcement priorities and policies. Although the plan doesn't actually specifically refer to gender, it does have a general commitment to being thorough and fair when evaluating how business practices and enforcement responses affect a broad range of market participants. That obviously would include gender as one factor, or at least after the toolkit is taken notice of, then it it could include gender. And then in the UK, the CMA has set equality objectives for 2020 to 2024. So that includes internal objectives about building a diverse and inclusive workforce that is reflective of the public that it serves as a whole. And then also ensuring that it sets some guidelines for how it makes decisions and ensuring that decisions it makes are representative of the different perspectives within society. Then I think more specifically in Canada, as part of this OECD and CCB project, the government's actually asked the Competition Bureau to incorporate a gender-based analysis framework into their review of policies. It's really been baked into their processes internally. They've been asked to consider how government policies and initiatives might impact different people and identity groups, including by gender. We haven't seen specific reactions from competition authorities to the OECD's toolkit itself yet, but I think this could be a topic that we see discussed in the authorities' next annual plans, for example. And what comes next after this? I mean, Vanessa, does the toolkit go beyond just highlighting this issue and actually give suggestions for both competition authorities and and companies as to how they might go about further implementing these conclusions in practice? 
Yes, indeed. They go beyond highlighting the issue. They do have quite a number of uh, recommendations that are relevant, especially in the context of market definition and competitive analysis. So this is particularly relevant for merger control. What are these concrete examples that are being made? Let me name a few. The first example is that data could be gathered in a disaggregated form in order to better understand how diverse groups may experience harm or benefits disproportionately. Just gathering data on a gender lens and gathering it for both women and men and then compare it and see what actually the result is. Second concrete example is the competitive analysis could consider supply and demand side factors through a gender lens and ask whether or how firms target a specific gender with a specific product. So is there actually different marketing for male customers and female customers? The third recommendation is you could use these findings on consumer preferences and could consider if there are anti-competitive or pro-competitive effects that will be experienced by a particular gender. It's also important to see if a merger has anti-competitive effects to just one group of the customers and not to both, and that should also be tested. What is ultimately the hope? The hope is that these practices could really serve to increase the accuracy of merger review by authorities, and if a certain problem is detected, then to allow a better tailored remedy. This is also a point which is of interest of companies subject to merger review. As I said, we as private practitioners, we also want to see what's in there for our clients. I will certainly take this point in my work and I will take it more seriously in my cases as applying these gender-focused competition law analysis might show a different angle to a case which looks complicated at first sight, but more differentiated when you drill it up. Thanks, Vanessa. And and Nick, how does this play out for conduct investigations? I mean, based on what you said earlier, it sounds like maybe we should be sneaking out cartel conduct in gentlemen's clubs. <laughs> well, indeed. Well, look, in addition to data gathering and market definition points that Vanessa's just made, Competition authorities could also factor in gender homogeneity of key decision-making groups to better detect those, um, as you're suggesting, who are more statistically predetermined or predisposed to be cartelists. And what's that mean in practice? I guess it could mean that industries with lower levels of diversity among staff may be at greater risk of cartel behaviour. So we might see authorities targeting more investigations and more compliance efforts in these spaces. It could also mean that competition authorities might also use gender-specific behavioural analyses to better understand incentives to collude between competitors. And in that regard, both of the studies regarding collusion and cartels do show differences when it comes to incentive or the composition of those groups in terms of gender. So cartels are more likely to form in homogenous groups with repeated interactions. And that means industries where you have in practice, as I referred to before, male-dominated decision makers that might be more prone to collude than would be the case in more diverse settings. And Although we don't have evidence that women would not behave similarly to men in an all-women environment, so that wasn't tested, it still suggests, I think, that it could be the case that more diverse groups benefit from more positive compliance outcomes. Well, as soon as we have an industry with all-women corporations, we'll test that one out, Nick. <laughs> Indeed. So 
Morag, I mean, thinking about what regulators might be doing to start incorporating these factors into their analyses. If I am a company sitting here thinking about a merger, for example, I might be considering in the next six months or a year, what should I be thinking about in terms of how this might impact the assessment? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of ways the toolkit might change the way authorities conduct their investigations, be it mergers or behavioral investigations. And that will help companies understand how to better predict and manage risks involved in these processes. I think companies can expect to see more detailed data set requests from authorities. So that would include probably more categories in the data set requests and then also requiring the data to be disaggregated to a level that we haven't seen so far. We also might expect to see an uptick in the use and the detail level of consumer surveys conducted during investigation proceedings. And, you know, as we've heard, maybe that will be to the benefit of companies where there might be differentiation waiting to be discovered. We might also see a greater focus on the gender makeup of a product's customer base and how it's marketed to different genders. And then another important area we could see a change is actually market definition itself. Obviously, all of those things go to market definition, but, you know, hopefully authorities might look at increasingly segmenting markets by gender where it's appropriate or even other diversity characteristics, actually. And then, you know, identifying specific consumer harms unique to those subsets which I think generally is helpful because it will help to narrow potential harms in some instances. Looking broader than the merger sphere, consumer investigations might also look at whether the use of dark patterns produces different outcomes for different genders or you know, disproportionately harms a particular gender or group. Another area might be in, in remedy design. So remedies might be able to be designed to improve outcomes for a specific consumer group rather than just focusing on the average consumer. So, you know, you can more tightly scope the market at issue, then you can design a remedy that fits that market more specifically. And then finally, in a behavioral sphere, I think companies will have a better understanding of how, you know, groups with repeat formal or informal interactions, homogenous groups tend to present an increased risk of cartel behavior. And that hopefully could change the way that companies and law firms design their internal compliance mechanisms and their approach to leniency even. Morag, thank you. What what I think we shouldn't forget about is that this also presents companies with a number of important opportunities in relation to competition law and gender. So, for example, as I mentioned before, it can result in a disruption of established market definitions where companies were stuck in a certain way from doing certain things, but have now a new tool available to break this up, which fits better the market reality. It can also increase the availability of rich consumer data sets, which is a competitive factor. And it could also encourage and reward greater gender diversity in companies themselves. The factor, as Jen, you mentioned, is very much on the radar already. But I think it's still important that there is now an additional thing which specifically focuses on competition law on the table, which encourages companies to consider this aspect even more. Thanks, Vanessa. And, you know, I want to ask you to do a little bit of crystal ball gazing here, but this toolkit is coming out at a time where we have some of the prominent competition authorities around the world, including the USFTC in the UK, led by women. You have gender diversity as a very prominent topic across lots of different spheres. And I'm curious whether you think that this discussion in the context of competition law, is this a significant moment where we're going to see a real paradigm shift where this becomes something that we're constantly considering in competition cases? Or is it kind of an interesting study splash in the pan, but we're going to revert back to business as usual? 
No, I don't think so. Women constitute half of all consumers. And according to the studies collated by the OECD, they play a very important role in purchasing decisions. And this is exactly what competition law looks at a lot, at least in consumer goods. And we talked about some of the conclusions with regard to consumer behavior and executive behavior. So this all shows that this is relevant and should indeed become a significant agenda item. I agree. I think, Jen, this is not brand new, but I still think it's a significant moment. And I think, sort of drawing on some of the themes we discussed earlier, outside of the more sort of obvious women-focused products and men-focused products where one would expect a different analysis to be done, the default, I think, at the moment quite a lot of the time is to approach an antitrust analysis through a gender neutral lens that sort of considers the average consumer, the straw person who makes the sort of most generic, economically rational decision. And I think if we adopt the gender lens more methodically and more rigorously, that must have the potential to lead to a more accurate understanding of how markets really operate and how this is supported by data and research. And by better understanding the sort of non-average behaviours of different types of consumers, it should be possible for competition authorities to make better decisions, which lead to better competitive and societal outcomes. And so I think raising this on the agenda at this stage should make a difference. If you put it front of mind and start applying it, we might see some of those differences coming through. So I think... The OECD study and the toolkit is really interesting and the time is right for focusing on the issue further. Yeah, and, and Nick, you mentioned that, you know, kind of the more general gender neutral way of thinking is sort of reflective of the, the Chicago school. And Morag, I'm curious, you know, how do you think about this focus on gender diversity? Is it part of the broader movements and antitrust towards more of a neo-Bendizian school of thought towards this sort of hipster antitrust way of thinking about the world? How does it fit with all of that? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think it's not too hipster given we're half the population, but I think you're right that at a very high level that the discussion of gender fits quite well with the Neo-Brandeisian school of thought. So, you know, for competition law that focuses not solely on the purely economic outcomes and economic analysis, but also the societal impact of competition enforcement, you know, that's where questions of inclusion also come into play. I think we could also see this gender-based competition analysis as a new strand of the recent ESG focus that we've seen in competition law. So I think so far ESG focus has really been predominantly on the E part. You're absolutely right, Morak. I mean, ESG, we have seen a lot of focus on environment. There are multiple guidelines out from the Netherlands, Greece, EU, with a revision of the horizontal cooperation guidelines to better account for collaboration on environmentally friendly initiatives and greenwashing guidance. So that's all on environment. And we see also on the business side, more and more companies considering and relying on green and environment-based justifications. So ESG, and especially the E so far, is a very significant agenda item for EU policymakers and enforcers alike when considering the overall legislative agenda. With this gender-inclusive toolkit, it looks like we might also be turning towards the social and governance elements of ESG, so that would be very exciting. And we may well see the toolkit recommendations, for example, leading to more antitrust ESG guidance with a focus on diversity, not just sustainability. 
And we've also seen that focus already in other areas. I think Jen mentioned earlier, you know, this is a focus in areas of corporate governance. And we've seen there's now diversity rules for boards of companies listing on NASDAQ. So the concept as a whole and the relevance to corporate governance isn't new. And actually, although the OECD project is focused on gender diversity, I think the toolkit is intentionally drafted fairly broadly. So there actually could be scope to apply some of the recommendations around data disaggregation and competitive analysis to other underrepresented groups. We're really excited to see where the toolkit recommendations take us. Well, thanks, Morag. I mean, I think that that is really a perfect place to wrap this up. It's a really fascinating topic. And I think those listening have more questions about this. You should for sure check out our blog post on this project and uh, feel free to reach out to your regular Freshfields contact if you want to know more. In the meantime, thank you so much to Nick, Vanessa and Morag for taking the time to share your thoughts on this with us today. And for those who listen, thank you very much for joining and we will see you next time for more Essential Antitrust.